Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. Can Christians become possessed by demons? What does scripture have to say about these dark beings? As we continue our journey in the Gospel of Matthew, we will consider that question and more. As you turn to Matthew chapter 8, I want to make a statement that may or may not be true, but I think in my own life and in the Christian life in America is kind of true. We tend, we have a tendency to domesticate Jesus. We have a tendency to domesticate Jesus. What do I mean by that statement? We tend to put Jesus in our box. The box that we have, the box that we look at life from, the box that we view the world from, comes from an outside story. And that outside story that primarily shapes the box that we look through is what I want to call a Western Enlightenment naturalistic worldview. And all that means is this, is we don't really have room for the supernatural. We don't have room for the spiritual. We don't have room for things we can't touch and taste and feel and prove in a science lab. And so when we look at Jesus and we see the things he's doing, we're like, well, yes, but no. We like to domesticate Jesus not just because of the worldview that we have. We tend to domesticate Jesus because then Jesus is safe. We can control him. We can use his life to look at what he did and then, and then take that little bit and then justify our life with it. See, the tendency to domesticate Jesus is both outward and inward. It's external and internal. And I want us to be people who actually come and recognize that. It's not wrong. You know why? Because this is who we are as humans, where we grew up. We have an external view of Jesus that has been shaped to us, outside of us. But then we also have this internal view. And how many of us can just acknowledge, including me, we have wrong views about Jesus? Like, let's just be honest. Like, it's not a bad thing. I'm not yelling at you. I'm yelling at all of us. And I want to step back in Matthew chapter 8 and just look at this. I have it on the screen for you. We've been in a series called The Good News of the Kingdom, the Gospel of the Kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 8, we've come out of this extensive teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And now we're into this, like, very rapid, quick action, activity of Jesus. And look what he, we've studied so far in Acts chapter 8 on the left. He says, he said, he spoke, be clean. And a leper was healed. He heals a centurion's servant from a distance. He touches Peter's mother-in-law and she is healed. He rebukes chaotic waters and they are peaceful and still. Let's just be honest. If someone came in here and just touched someone and it was all better, and someone spoke and just said, be clean, and someone just had, was cured of leprosy, and someone just said, you know what, your mom, 10 miles down the road, go home, she's good. 
And then we see this crazy storm, and Jesus just says, stop. What would we do to Jesus? Of course, we're Sunday school Christians, so we say, well, of course that's what Jesus does. But do you understand what Jesus is actually doing? There is touching. There's just a spoken word. There is distance. And there's chaos being taken care of. Look at not just how he does it, but who he's doing it. There's sickness. No sickness can actually stop Jesus. The marginalized, whether that be a leper, whether that be a Gentile, whether that be an elderly woman, these people are healed. Nature, the waters below and the waters above are being ceased and calmed by Jesus. And Nate made this really important statement last week that I want to revisit. Not just asking this week, what does the Bible say or what is Matthew saying to us through the Spirit? But asking the question, what is Matthew doing? Why is Matthew recording all of these ridiculous things of Jesus? Ridiculously crazy things of Jesus. Do you think he just sat down one day and he's like, oh, I remember that cool story. Let me write that here. Oh, here's another cool story, and he wrote that here. No, what is Matthew doing in this particular chapter? Well, I want you to notice that he is undoing the curse that Adam and Eve brought upon the world. He is undoing it so that God's world that he has always desired to have would now emerge and erupt through an obedient son. The world God desired was brought to a ruin through a disobedient son and was never brought to the place of fulfillment and consummation. However, now one man is doing both of those. He is undoing the world that is and he's bringing the world that should be. And when you look at what he's doing, he's dealing with sickness and death, which has been brought upon by the curse. And he's dealing with marginalization so that lepers and Gentiles and elderly women who have actually been ostracized from society can now be brought back in and enjoy relationship with one another and there can be harmony. And he's taking the nature, the natural realm that now that we should be ruling over is ruling over us. And he's saying, I am bringing that under control. This is the kingdom of God. When the kingdom of God breaks in, sickness and curse and disease and ostracization and and economic divides and all of these divisions are gone. We don't have to walk outside and be afraid of snakes anymore when the kingdom of God breaks in. But there's more. There's more that needs to be undone. There's more than just sickness and estranged humanity and nature. They are not the only effects of the curse because there's even a greater danger that needs to be defeated. The enemy that needs to be defeated is the one who is actually controlling all of these things that Jesus has just shown he has the power to undo. And these are the powers of darkness. Redemption Church, I think we, we look out at the Christian world and we use these analogies. Some Christian people in the the country think Satan is behind every door, right? 
Satan is behind everything. Like, you wake up and you stub your toe and you're like, oh, curse Satan. Like, just everything, every day, Satan's everywhere. He's behind every door. For some of us, we're on the other end of the spectrum. We could open up a thousand doors and never even think of them. And when you actually begin to study the spiritual realm, the spiritual beings in the Bible, they're everywhere. What I want to say is he's not behind every door, but he's behind a lot more doors than you think he is. There's a real spiritual powers of darkness. These beings, these spiritual beings are powerful and they seek to do harm. And yet in Matthew chapter 8, we are introduced now to a very important story where Jesus is now going to deal with the prince of darkness and his people. And again, we domesticate this. We, we domesticate the supernatural realm. We domesticate the spiritual beings that are existing that we can't see. We want to bring them under our control, and so we ignore them. Or we say they're everywhere so that we can have some sense of peace in our lives. And in reality, I don't think we have a very good understanding of the spiritual world. Today is just, as I said, as we go through Matthew and be sprinkling in these pieces. We're not going to do a whole grand study on the spiritual realm, but we will begin this morning to continue looking into this. Because in this story... We have the first and only use of the word demon in the Gospels. We are introduced to a spiritual being, spiritual beings that are now identified as demons. Okay? And we don't want to fantasize demons. I should say over-fantasize demons, conjuring fans, right? Nor do we want to minimize the reality of demons. We've already seen in Matthew chapter 4 where the, the people who had unclean spirits and evil spirits, Jesus came and healed them. But now we actually have our very first story about demons in Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, Matthew records this. When Jesus arrived at the other side of the region, the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could even pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding and the demons begged Jesus, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off went into the town, reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and they saw him, and they pleaded to forgive them. 
No. They pleaded for him to leave. Okay, this is a crazy story. Okay, this is absolutely bonkers. Okay, that, again, don't domestic, like, think about this. You drive by the next graveyard, you walk through the next graveyard, and there's two people who you put chains on, and they're breaking the chains, according to Mark chapter 5. They're in, they're almost like Incredible Hulk. They got this strength that just has come upon them, and they don't know what to do with it, and so they're just destroying everything. And these people then are talking to Jesus, making a declaration about who Jesus actually is, and then they go off into pigs, and then they go down the hill into a, a lake and die? Okay, I promise you, if Jesus came up today, I would almost guarantee I would be like, Jesus, leave. Leave. This is crazy. You're interrupting my comfort. You're interrupting my life. You're interrupting my economic realities. Just go. But there's something very powerful in this passage that I want to share with you as to why we should not tell Jesus to leave. So, Father, help us as we look at this passage this morning to have eyes of faith to see into a world that we cannot see, but with faith we can see, and into a world where Jesus is victorious where he has defeated and is disarming the powers of darkness and the principalities and the powers. And we give you praise for that as we are encouraged in who our God and the person of Jesus is for us as a people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to do two things. One, this is just bonus because it's Pentecost Sunday. Okay, here's a little Acts 2 trivia for you. Okay, you go back to Genesis chapter 10, the Tower of Babel. I don't know why, this is not in my notes, okay? But this is, this is just fun, it's Pentecost. So Genesis chapter 10, remember the Tower of Babel? All the nations, they get scattered. Then in Acts chapter 2, all the nations come where? To Pentecost. And there's only one nation that's represented in Genesis 10 that's not represented in Acts chapter 2. And it's a town called Tarshish. I don't know if you ever heard of that town before or why it's familiar or popular. But in Genesis chapter 10, this is kind of, oh man, this is a whole other can of worms. You can meet me in the corner. But Genesis chapter 10 is where all of the demonic realm is now, evil demons are now taking over the nations. And all the nations are under the realm and the, and the power of the evil one. And now in Acts chapter 2, in the power of the Pentecost, the gospel is now breaking all of those and going to all the nations except for one, Tarshish. Where did Paul want to go that he never got to? Tarshish. Why do you think he wanted to get to Tarshish in Spain? Because that was the one space that had not had the gospel yet. He wasn't just like, man, I love Barcelona and soccer. No, he was like, I gotta get to Spain because that's the region that the gospel has not gone to yet. And that's what Pentecost is all about. It's the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and the spirit of God with the people of God, taking the kingdom of God to the nations and breaking the power of Satan over cities and nations and people. Isn't that great? A little Bible tri trivia for you. Now let's get back to our sermon. What are demons? Demons are fallen. We could call them rebellious 
spiritual beings who now act in malicious, evil ways. As I mentioned, demon, the only time we see the word demon actually in, I think, the New Testament, let alone the Gospels, is right here in Luke, or Matthew chapter 8. They're described as evil spirits, unclean spirits. Mary Magdalene, who is one of the followers of Jesus, is described as one who's been cured of evil spirits, of someone who had, someone had seven demons cast out of. Demons still have some of the characteristics of unfallen spiritual beings. They use language of I and us, which I want to just say that they are persons. They are actual people. They are beings who can use language of I or we or us. They are intelligence. They know who Jesus is. But they're not omniscient. They don't know all things. In Acts chapter 19... The evil spirit that had the seven sons of Sceva, and if you want to read about that in Acts chapter 19, that Paul confronted, they knew who Jesus and Paul were, but they didn't know who the sons of Sceva were, so they don't know everything. They can be fearful. Luke chapter 8 tells us they, they had an emotion of fear. Here in Matthew chapter 8, these, these demons are afraid of Jesus. We see that they can enter into and influence the human body and the personality, and they can do that individually, one, or they can do it in enormous numbers in some cases. In fact, in the parallel account in Mark chapter 5 of Matthew chapter 8, it says there was a legion of demons in these men. That's like thousands of demons inhabiting this person. They can cause physical effects involving human subjects. They can cause disease. They can cause sickness. In fact, Paul says the thorn in the flesh was from who? An angel of Satan. A messenger of Satan is one who caused the thorn in the flesh for the apostle Paul. So, just throwing this out there, I think demons can actually cause thorns in the flesh for you and me. If it happened to Paul, they can still inflict things upon us, always under the sovereignty of God. Do you hear me? But when we look at this story and we begin to look at demons, let's break this story up into, into three parts, okay? And, and in the Greek, there's this word behold three times in this story. The first one is behold the demons. The second one is behold the pigs. And the third one is behold the townspeople. Okay, so the, the story breaks up between the demon, the demonized people. I'll use that phrase very particularly. You'll see why. The demonized people, and then the pigs, and then the townspeople. Matthew says that they were coming out of the tombs, these demonized people. They were living basically in the graveyards. And in these tombs, there would have these front rooms that you could actually enter before you go into the, the back room where the person would actually be buried. And they were living in those front rooms. And they'd probably been abandoned, and they'd probably just taken over them. And because they were so powerful and breaking chains and doing all this destruction, people just left them alone. Matthew tells us they were exceedingly violent. Their form of de demonization made them a menace to society. No one could go by them. No one could pass their way. The fierceness of their power and their attacks made it 
impossible for ordinary people to use that road. As I've mentioned, Mark spends more time in Mark chapter 5, if you want to read the parallel story, describing these demonized people, their superhuman strength. But they weren't just breaking all of the chains that people were putting on them. They were bruising themselves, self-torture. They were cutting themselves with stones. They were really being tormented by this legion of demons. Matthew simply emphasizes the extreme violence. They apparently saw the road as their territory like animals do and opposed anyone who came that way. In fact, Mark chapter 5, look, at, I have it on the screen for you. It says this, For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to do him. Isn't that? I just love the Bible. No one's able to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and the hills, he'd cry out, cut himself with stones, screaming, What do you want with us, Son of God? Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? So, do you just see the absolute torment that is going on, the absolute power, the absolute, for us, insanity of what is going on? Don't domesticate this. These are people with superhuman strength. And they have two cries. They have two things they're shouting at at Jesus. The first one is a question. And I've read it, but again, the question is, what do you want with us, Son of God? This is interesting. Matthew's trying to prove to everyone that Jesus is the Son of God, right? And these demons already know it. Now, Son of God is not just a title of divinity. It's not just a title that Jesus is God. Son of God has a, a title that goes all the way back to Adam, who is the first Son of God. And now Jesus is, at the baptism, the beloved Son of God. Here is the one Son who God was going to use Adam, but in his rebellion, now through Jesus, this new world is going to be brought forth. And these demons know that this man, Jesus, is the true son. The true one who God has given authority and power over them to usher in God's kingdom. But it's interesting to me that James speaks to this reality that even the demons believe and are what? Fearful. Just because you believe in your head that Jesus is the Son of God, we would say congratulations, so do the demons. There isn't just a mental recognition or a mental cognition that you know who Jesus is and that makes you part of his family. Because there's another absolutely crucial part to this. It's not just a mental understanding and belief that Jesus is who he says he is, but there is, number two, a submission to that authority. There is a submission to the Son of God that is absolutely necessary, and that is why the demons can absolutely have right theology and be destined for hell. Because there is a submission that they refuse to give to Jesus, to God. Have you come now, the second part of this question, have you come to torture us? before the appointed time. <laughs> See, the whole point of Matthew, one of the whole points of Matthew, is to show us how the kingdom of God in Jesus has already come, but is not yet fully here. 
I don't have the circles for you, so it's okay. It'll be all right. I left the circles alone. But if you think of the two overlapping circles, this was a mystery to the Jews at the time, and it's a mystery to them. They thought when the Son of God appeared that their judgment was what? Imminent. They thought their judgment was going to come almost immediately. And so these demons are saying, you have come... And now is the time that you're going to actually throw us into our final torture. They're not aware of God's plan, just like the disciples are starting to be more aware of God's plan. And they have a final destination awaiting for them. Second Peter chapter 2 says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them... In all of our English translations say the word hell, but it is not the Greek word hell. It is the Greek word Tartarus, and we'll talk more about that another time. But sent them to a place called Tartarus, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. See, there is a place where demons already exist, where they're being held in chains for future judgment. And I believe this, I'm not going to prove this, and I'm not dying on hell for it, but I think these demons are asking Jesus, are you going to send us there? Are you going to send us to this place to be chained, just waiting our judgments? So these demons have right theology, but no submission. They know their appointed end, but don't know God's plan. And they know the torture that is awaiting them, just as they are torturing this man, is coming to them. Mark... No, Matthew, because that's what we're studying. Matthew adds this note. Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. And the demons begged Jesus. The implication is this wasn't a one-time thing. This was an over and over thing. If you drive us out, send us into a herd of pigs. I'll show a map to you in a minute. But this region where Jesus is is very hilly. It is filled with mountainsides and hillsides. And the image here is that in this area, they can look up and see where all these pigs are grazing on a hillside. The presence of pig farm here means that we're in primarily Gentile territory. We are not dealing with a Jewish area. We're dealing primarily with Gentiles who are farming and grazing these pigs. And the question is, why do they want to be sent to pigs? Right? This is strange. How many of you thought you were going to come and hear about pigs grazing on hillsides in churches in church this morning? Not you. Not me. Until we came to this. But reason for this request is quite weird. And, again, I'm not dying in hell for this. I'm just giving you a little bit of research that I've done and the best answer that I've found. And there's lots of answers out there, by the way. But the implication seems to be that these demons that we are dealing with are territorial, geographical beings. It is probably understood that these demons, these legion of demons, were the ones who had control over this particular area across the Jordan River and what we call a Transjordan. Actually, could you just put the map up, Garrett? That would be great. You can just kind of see it. Uh, and if you know Israel, this is the northern Israel, the Sea of Galilee in the middle, and we're just on the southeast side there. And you can kind of see all the hill structures there if you have 20-10 vision. <laughs> if not, I can send you a map on later and you can look at it. 
but they're probably uh, uh, trying to retain control over their locations. And, uh, you know, we can't get into all the reasons why, but the best answer I've found is that they went into these pigs because in these pigs they could still actually retain control of their area. Jesus would not be sending them out. So here we have these demons making great declarations, asking Jesus, is this the time? And if you're going to actually do anything to us, send us to pigs. Jesus' reply. The only time Jesus talks in this entire story, he says only one word. And it's only one word in the Greek. And you go back to these men who have been breaking chains, destroying things, absolutely gone crazy. The entire town has like left them alone. And these thousands of demons inhabiting these men are torturing these men, asking Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He says one word. Go. And it's a command. He commands those demons to leave. This shows the absolute power of Jesus over the demonic realm and the beings of the spiritual realities. Jesus, with one word, befells thousands of demons. Jesus has the power, as the obedient son, to remove the torments, remove the power that these demons had over this man. And I'm not saying all this is right or wrong. I'm just saying this. When you watch TV and watch movies and you hear about exorcisms, there's incantations, there's rites, there's rituals, there's ceremonies, there's all of these long-out things. And Jesus just does what? Just says go. Church, this is the God that we follow. Someone that can actually take 2,000 demons and in one word say go and they're gone. Why do we follow Jesus? Not just because he does. He takes away all of our sin. But we follow Jesus because he is the one who is leading us and paving the way and removing all of the obstacles of sin and sickness and ostracization and all of the you know, re realities that we have in this world that are being through the powers of darkness that are just destroying all the flourishing and the wholeness. And Jesus is like a bulldozer. He's just roaming right through, paving the way for us to enjoy life and peace and wholeness. And he has power over the demonic realm. This is our Jesus that we follow that is leading us to God's kingdom. Which then naturally begs the question this. Can a Christian be possessed like these men? The word possession is a very interesting word. 
just so we're clear on this, the Bible in the Greek and in Hebrew never uses the phrase demon possession. It has words that has like possession and ownership and to have, but it actually never uses the phrase a demon possesses this person. It uses it the other way around. Person X has a demon, but it never talks about a demon having possession and ownership over an individual. Isn't that interesting? And the only way we talk about demon possession is demon possession. It got popularized in, the, in a Bible that was written a couple hundred years ago. It's not wrong, like it's a King James Bible, but that's where the idea of demon possession came from. That's how those writers try to explain what this Greek word means. But I think, is, and I would encourage you, as we journey more into this reality of the spiritual world through the Gospel of Matthew, to, in a sense, stop using the phrase demon possession. There is no hint in all of Scripture of that idea of a demon actually possessing or owning anything. It never speaks in any Old Testament, New Testament reality. The expression is always, if it is, he has a demon. And I believe the emotional impact of this phrase, demon possession, detracts from having a real objective discussion of the subject. We're like, a Christian can't be demon-possessed, so we just run away from everything. Does that make sense? Exorcist can't be true. And we just have all these crazy ideas. And, and if we can remove the idea of demon possession, which is never even biblical, and we can actually, I think, begin to have a more open and honest conversation about what we're dealing with. I like to use the phrase demonization or demonized. This is actually what the Greek word means. It is the actual verb form of demon. To be demon. <laughs> Does that make sense? So, demonized, demonization. One of the most difficult lessons for me as a Christian, and maybe for you to learn, is that protection against demonic attack just because you're a Christian is not automatic. Simply being a child of God does not guarantee that you can waltz through life insulated from demonic influence and invulnerable to the schemes and strategies of the enemy. This is why the Bible continues to call us to be armed with weapons of warfare. This is why the Bible continually calls us to be knowing that we are in a real war. We have weaponry that the, of a soldier that God has given us that we are to wear. When we're not wearing it, the enemy can actually take us captive. He can't take us back for good, okay? Do you hear me? Please hear that. If you belong to Christ, you can never lose Christ because Christ will never lose you. Please hear that. But that does not mean that Satan cannot take you captive in your minds, in your thoughts, in your actions, and in your will. In fact, Paul says we need to take every thought captive so that we don't get taken captive. 
and that he's praying for people in the churches who have been taken captive, that they will repent and come back to see the truth. Or Ananias and Sapphira, you know, like bad, these people get a bad rap, but they're probably genuine Christians who just opened themselves up and Satan filled their heart to lie. Satan filled Ananias and Sapphira's heart to lie. We are in a war, and we have a real enemy who can, to varying degrees, influence and control us if we are not resisting him. If we don't know that we have an adversary that is roaring like a roaring, prowling around like a roaring lion, trying to do what to you? Devour you. And what is the very next phrase in 1 Peter? Because we probably all know that because we grew up in Awana. But anyone know what the next verse actually says? But resist him firm in your faith. Your faith, continual faith, is what resists Satan. Or as James tells us, resist him and he will flee from you. So, you can never be owned by the evil one. The evil one can never snatch you out of God's hands. But he can, if we're not careful, take you captive. If we are not on guard, not understanding, not aware, not being aware that there is this other whole world out there that we, because we don't see it, forget about it, that is affecting us, influencing us, and causing us to do things. The whole world is in, under the power of the evil one. So number one, behold the demons. Number two, behold the pigs. Good transition, right? Modern readers are often bothered by Jesus' apparent disregard for the welfare of the pigs. How many of you, when you read this, were just like, how could Jesus kill 2,000 pigs? Peter would be going crazy. Like, it's just, and I even struggle with it. I'm like, why would you just kill 2,000 pigs? Well, it's not just the death of 2,000 pigs. But it's also the financial loss to the herders. This was their livelihood. These weren't their pets. Okay? It wasn't 2,000 domesticated dogs running down a hill into a lake. This was their livelihood. This was their income. The losses must seen as, I think, must be seen as what we're going to call casualties in the war, being raged between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. See, if we don't approach this text and see that there's a war going on, we're missing it. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't like, you know, you know okay, this is not a Disney movie where some prince is winning the war and defeating the bad guy and we live happily ever. No, there is like a real war happening. And these are like, in a sense, casualties. And while God is out to save, Satan is bent on destruction. And actually, if you look very carefully, in this battle scene, Jesus delivers the man from the oppression. He delivers the, the, the men from being demonized. Well, who actually destroys the pigs? The demons do, don't they? The demons are the one who enter into the pigs and cause the pigs to go flying into the lake. Jesus didn't say, go into them and then go into the lake. 
It's almost a picture that Jesus didn't command that. He didn't do that. He just said, leave. And then they ran down into the water. The relative value of human life and animal life must also be considered in the sense that in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, aren't humans, aren't people more valuable than sheep? Okay? Love your animals, but love your humans more. Are your humans more annoying? Most of the time, but love them more. Disciples of Jesus is also a picture that, as Nate talked about a few weeks ago, must be willing to give up all for the kingdom of God, including homes and lands and family. Another puzzling question is what happened to the demons after they went into the pigs? <laughs> right? Like, this is, who knows? This is, again, just ideas. But why, why if you're a legion of demons, would you enter pigs and then run into a lake? Seems like a very weird reality. Were they destroyed? Were they banished to wander aimlessly? It's interesting, almost the irony of the story might suggest that their desperate attempt to stay in the region has failed, and their worst fears have been realized. Do you know what the depths of the sea pictured in the ancient world? The depths of the sea in the ancient world pictured the underworld or, or the netherworld or what we might call hell. It's almost leading us to think that they didn't want to go to the place where they were going, but in those pigs, they ran down into the very place they did not want to go. But regardless of where they are, where they went, they were gone. But they're not the only thing that is gone. Because the third behold is behold the townspeople. The people that saw the pigs ran and told everyone in the town. Can you, I mean, this is like weird because of, again, suburbia in our world. But, you know, if something happened like this, where would you go? YouTube, Instagram, to tell everyone this is what's happening. But they went to the town center and news like this spread really fast. And just as the demons begged Jesus not to send them out of the area and to send them into the pigs, now the townspeople beg. And it's the exact same Greek word. The demons are begging Jesus to send you there. And the townspeople are begging Jesus to go. And the reason, primarily, is fear. They're afraid that they're going to lose more economic realities. They're afraid of what else this magician is going to be doing. Afraid of what Jesus is going to do to their town. This is seen as a dangerous disruption to their peaceful lives. In church, when the kingdom of God breaks in, Do you see that as a dangerous disruption to your peaceful life? Or do you see it as an all-out abandonment to follow Jesus? I'm going to get real for a second, okay? And you know I make fun of red and blue, Democrat and Republican. So I'm not on one team. But what I want to say is, when things come into our country, are they disrupting your comforts? Or are they actually values of the kingdom of God? 
I think if Jesus showed up and brought about his kingdom, a lot of us would say, you're disrupting my moral conservative life, go. And we'd be Pharisees. I think there'd be a lot of us as well who'd be the Sadducees and it'd be like, this guy's crazy. Have nothing to do with him. But the reality is, is when the kingdom of God comes in, when it breaks in, in ways like it broke in in this story, it brings disruption to peaceful lives. And I don't think we're comfortable with that. That's the definition of being uncomfortable, not comfortable. But it is what is bringing good what is bringing joy and wholeness to us. So church, do not just choose values and do not just choose ways of life because they're comfortable. Choose the ones that are of the kingdom of God. And when you do that, I promise you, you will experience spiritual warfare. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.